Welcome back to the Lydia McGrew channel. I'm going to be uh, starting to title a series with the video that I'm giving today. I'm going to call it something like development theories of the Gospels are all bunk. Um, so this is going to go over several theories of supposed gospel development over time and argue that they just do not hold up to scrutiny and that they are based on cherry-picked data. I began with that a little bit last time talking about um, the incident of Jesus being rejected at Nazareth and Matthew saying that Jesus um, did not heal many people, whereas Mark says that he could not, the supposed reaction by Matthew. And I discussed how that does not hold up, this notion of um, Matthew redacting in the service of a higher Christology. So today I'm going to be discussing Jesus' passion. And I'm going to talk about cherry-picking Jesus' passion to create a, a, an appearance, an artificial appearance of development. Um, so I'm going to start by stating one of these development theories <clears throat> concerning Jesus' passion. And I'm going to be borrowing here uh, from Bart Ehrman. But unfortunately, he's not the only one who has accepted some idea of, of this development in Jesus' passion. So the idea is that there's this development in Jesus' passion from more suffering to less suffering, from uh, Jesus not being in control, his being more or less a helpless victim of other people who are tormenting him and killing him in Mark, and his being more in control of his own death, ultimately in John, but, you know, gradually as we go on. What you'll often find in these theories is that um, either Matthew will be grouped with Mark or Matthew will be grouped with Luke. Um, and this is probably partly because the exact order of Matthew versus Luke is not a matter of very strong scholarly consensus in the mainstream world. But definitely big consensus. Mark is first, then in some order or other, Matthew and Luke, and of course John is last. Um, and I don't even necessarily disagree with that order, though I would not put John very late. Um, I'm even open to John being before 70, though I tend to think that it was in his old age. Be that as it may, here goes with a development theory of the passion. In Mark, Jesus is silent throughout his crucifixion as if in shock. The only thing he utters is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, it, Mark's account is very stark. Jesus is forsaken by everybody and he doesn't know why he has to die. He is so much more noble in Luke. He forgives the thief on the cross. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So he's much more calm and in control in Luke. And then ultimately in John, 
uh, Jesus crucifixion, and this is actually from Ehrman, is not actually agonizing for him. Um, and in John, we find that everything is according to plan. He uh, predicts that uh, Judas Iscariot will betray him. He even says in John 10, 18, as part of the Good Shepherd Discourse, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down voluntarily. I have authority to lay it down and to take it up from my father. And then he cries triumphantly in John 19, verse 30, it is finished. So he's the victor there in John. And so we can see this gradual progression of, uh, you know, more and more nobility, more and more control, um, less and less of a victim, etc. as we go through the Gospels. Okay, there's the theory. Now let's discuss how cherry-picked this is. It's, I'm probably not even going to remember everything. I, I, I started out making notes and I, I like filled a whole page and then I went over on the other side. So I may, I may not even hit everything. I'm going to try to link in the description and uh, feel free to message me and remind me if I forget to do this. Uh, some good blog posts by Jonathan McClatchy and Eric Manning testify where they discuss uh, some of this. Uh, I think I'm going to have a few more points than they do, but you know we're all making the same point that this is very, very cherry-picked. So let's start with some commonalities between the Gospels, which uh, Airmen is suppressing and others who are on this bandwagon are just not noticing or whatever. First of all, um, the flogging, abuse, and mockery of Jesus and his suffering are present in all four of the Gospels. Um, there's even a unique instance of Jesus being mocked and mistreated in Luke. So Luke is the very Gospel that Ehrman emphasizes, you know, how noble and in control Jesus is. Well, Luke 22, 6 through 12 has a unique account. It's not in any of the other Gospels of Pilate sending him off to Herod for kind of a political reason, and Herod's men-at-arms mock him. You know, bullies are going to be bullies the world over. And then Herod sends him back to Pilate. So Jesus is being kicked around from Pilate to Herod, Herod to Pilate, and it even says that they're friends after that day. So it's like this political gesture. Very, very um, painful and ironic to you if you are a believer, uh, or even if you just think of Jesus as an innocent man being used in this way as a political pawn and being mocked. That's unique to Luke. Um, and just his suffering on the cross is it's there, you know, all the way through. Um, his asking that the cup may pass from him. It's in all the synoptic gospels. Now, Ehrman discusses a lot this unique thing that if it's anywhere, it's in Luke, about him sweating drops of blood. And there are textual questions about that, uh, actually independent textual questions about that. So obviously that wouldn't fit with Ehrman's, you know, noble Jesus in Luke claim. But we don't even need that 
just back up a verse in Luke. He's praying that the cup may pass from him and then saying that, you know, it, it may not, right? He realizes that it may not. And this is the same in Mark and in Matthew. I'm not saying that these are all independent accounts. It's not my point here. I'm, I'm fine with acknowledging some type of synoptic literary dependence in these places. But my point is that Luke does not, you know, edit that out. Okay. His, his pleading that the cup may pass, it's right there. So if we're going to try to say that there's this redactive agenda, um, you know, I guess Luke missed one, right? Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is in both Mark and Matthew. So it's not just in Mark. It's also in Matthew, but you can't uh, just say, okay, then we're going to categorize Matthew with Mark where Jesus is just a helpless victim and he's not in control and blah, blah, blah. Because when they come to arrest Jesus in, in the garden, okay, in Matthew, and, and this is unique, um, and one of the disciples, you know, takes out a sword and attacks one of the people who are arresting him and Jesus tells him to stop and then he says don't you think that if I asked my father don't you realize he would give me 12 legions of angels but the scripture must be fulfilled so you can't assimilate Matthew to either alleged pattern okay so you know on the you know, painful, suffering, victim, less controlled, supposedly doesn't know why he has to die. You've got, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't agree with that interpretation of that cry. I think he, I think he may have genuinely felt alone, but to, to say that he doesn't know why he has to die, we're going to find counter evidence to that here in just a moment. But the point is, if that's what that's supposed to mean, well, that's in Matthew 2. It's in Matthew also. Um, but then up here on the, you know, in control, he's powerful. We've got uniquely in Matthew, Jesus saying that his father could send him 12 legions of angels. We got this calm in the garden when they come to arrest him. And that's unique to Matthew. Imagine if that were in John. I mean, Ehrman picks out the fact that um, in John, when they come to arrest him and, you know, they they say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth and he says, I am he, and they all fall down. Ehrman picks that out. That's unique to John. He's like, ooh, you know, that's fair game that Jesus is so powerful and calm and so forth in, in the gospel of John. But we also find this very calm, powerful, understanding statement in the Gospel of Matthew and nowhere else. Okay? I, I could get out of this if I wanted to. Notice the resemblance to no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. Found in the Good Shepherd Discourse in John. But they're in different contexts. They're different statements. They're different, you know, ways of putting this. I have no doubt that, that Jesus said both of these things. Okay? But notice how that counteracts the progression thesis, because Matthew is undeniably earlier than John. Okay, um, in John, of course, we find I'm 
thirsty. And that's unique to John. It's the only expression on the cross. If we're focusing on the crucifixion, it's the only expression of physical pain. In, in the Gospels, there on the crucifixion. And it's in John, supposedly this more developed gospel where Jesus' death is not agonizing to him. You know, we'll see next time how Ehrman tries to explain that away. Um, this whole silent throughout, he even uses the phrase, the entire proceeding. Um, well, you have, to, you have to cherry pick that. You have to focus just on the crucifixion in Mark, because if you back up a little bit, you find in Mark 14, 48, when they come to arrest him in the garden, he says, am I leading a rebellion that you are coming to me after me with, you know, clubs and so forth? You know, he's, he's very strong there in the garden. And if you say, well, we're just going to focus on the crucifixion, then why are we bringing up the men falling back in the garden in John? Why are we bringing up Jesus predicting that uh, Judas Iscariot specifically will betray him in John. You see what's going on here? We're focusing in and focusing out as that is convenient for the developmental thesis. Uh, we also find in Mark, in the, the Sanhedrin trial, what I mentioned in the last episode, where the uh, high priest says, you know, tell us whether you're the Christ, the Son of God, and he says, I am and you will see the Son of Man, you know, coming on the clouds and so forth. This is a very strong statement, even in the, in the Greek of Mark, ego me, I am, Mark 14, 62. So, um, to say he's silent throughout the entire proceeding, Ehrman even says, as if in shock. And, and when you just look at the evidence more broadly, that's not true, okay, in, in Mark. That's definitely not true. Um, now we find also the contrast between Luke and John. I think this is important because the theory is that this is a developmental line that goes from Mark to John. Okay, I mean, you'll hear all over the place, John has the highest Christology and so forth. Please see my um, series on how Jesus sounds in John to discuss that. Um, but here as well, you know, where Ehrman is saying it's all part of the plan, it's all part of the plan. Okay, contrast though the fact that you've got these noble sayings like Jesus forgives the thief and he says, into your hands I commit my spirit in Luke. And those are not repeated in John. Okay, so a lot of times, this is how this will go. The, the critic will start with Mark and then contrast Mark to either Matthew or Luke or both and go see development. And then, you know, wave hands in the direction of, yeah, and the development continues in John. Maybe bring up a couple of cherry-picked data points. Okay, but, but really focusing on uh, Mark to either Matthew or Luke. But if you go over here and you contrast Luke to John, you'll sometimes find more of these supposed 
incidents showing, you know, whatever the thing is supposed to be, in this case, his being noble on the cross and control and so forth, in Luke than you find in John. So in John, we have him committing uh, his mother to the beloved disciple while he's on the cross. You could think of that as a, a, a noble, controlled thing. Okay, but, you know, that's 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 the only place where he's like, having conversations. And personally, I see nothing any more uh, developed about it is finished than Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I think he said both of those and, and I think you just have to strain to make that a development. But then you have other conversations in Luke. He's going, um, you know, forgiving the thief, telling the thief he'll be with him in paradise. He's, um, we even find Father forgive them for they do not know what they do in Luke. That is, again, something about which there is some textual question. But notice we've got one thing in Luke on the one side, Jesus suffering, about which there is some textual question. And another thing on the other side, you know, Jesus noble and controlled in Luke, about which there is some textual question. If they're anywhere there, they're in Luke. This shows this mixed, lumpy nature of the evidence. Um, we also find that Jesus predicts his death all the way through, all, all the way through the Gospels and his resurrection. So this whole thing where uh, Ehrman is saying, oh, it's all part of the plan in John. It's definitely all part of the plan in Mark over and over again. Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. He even predicts that he will be uh, spit upon, held in contempt mistreated uh, by other people. So he, he foresees that. And then he will die. And then he explicitly says in Mark that he will rise again. He does this in uh, Matthew as well. And in Luke as well, predicts his death and resurrection. Okay, but my point is, this is this commonality that it's part of the plan. It's not a, it's not a, you know, doesn't know why he has to die in Mark. He's just he's just in shock. He's a victim. He's taken by surprise and then goes up to here. And then in John, it's all part of the plan. It's always all part of the plan that he's predicting his, his death and his resurrection. You know, in John, a, a completely different incident. John 2, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. That's not found in any of the other gospels. Um, but John doesn't have some of the other predictions of his death and resurrection. Those are in the synoptics. So it it's almost impossible for a mainstream sort of literary critic of the Gospels to break out of this mold, this model, that somehow you've got this gradual evolutionary development of the Gospels, in this case, in, in Jesus' suffering, in his passion, in his control, and so forth. But the theory is all bunk. Instead, what we have are natural variations with the evidence going uh, in all kinds of directions, both as to what's common and as to what's unique. Now, that would be expected, especially for the unique bits, if we have some degree of independence among the Gospels. So, for example, only Luke appears to have heard about Jesus being sent to Herod and mocked 
by Herod's war band. All right. Um, only John uh, appears to either have heard of or want to include Jesus saying that he's thirsty. Okay. And then we've got that commonality of some of his par of parallel passages throughout the synoptics of his predicting his death and resurrection. And so all of this is just way too messy and way too much like real life coming from real people recording real incidents um, to be captured within the rigid models of the literary critics of the Gospels. That's the kind of thing we're trying to explain here at my channel. And ne next time I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the attempts to explain these things away or find other supposed indications of development, uh, which are very, very dubious, very questionable concerning Jesus being in control of his passion. So I hope you'll come back next time because I don't want to make this particular video too long. Please come back to the Lydia McGrew channel where we're pointing out cherry picking, pointing out theories that are bunk and making common sense rigorous.